Welcome to The Work Seminar, the podcast for people with liberal arts advanced degrees considering work outside their fields of study. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for another episode. I'm your host, Jesse Butts. Today I'm talking with Jonathan Kranz, an MFA in creative writing turned a marketing writer and trainer. Jonathan and I met at a co- marketing conference in 2019. Jonathan is now the principal at Kranz Communications, a business-to-business content and copywriting firm, and he's also a workshop and training leader for numerous clients. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Delighted to have you on. Delighted to be here. Ever since you invited me, I've been looking forward to this. Excellent. So, Jonathan, can we talk a little bit about what you're doing now? What type of projects are you focusing on? What type of clients are you working with? Well, first of all, in terms of clients, it tends to be mostly uh, business to business, not so much uh, uh, B2C. So uh, for everyone to know, I'm a marketing copywriter, which means that I write that anonymous stuff that you may find annoying. It could be a commercial interrupt, something you're watching, less likely that, junk mail. But Today, most of that work is really web-related, just like everything else in marketing has changed through digital. So uh, I would say that the bulk of my work has to do with digital one way or another, website copy, content, that is, you know, stuff that you can download from the web, including eBooks and white papers, scripts for videos, email, email blasts, email campaigns, articles, occasional blog posts. Just about anything that uh, a B2B marketer would need to get the word out. My clients tend to fall into these categories, high-tech, healthcare, financial services, business services, and higher education. That's the core of my business. And is any of that work on social media, or are you pretty dedicated to web work? You know, very little of it is directly tied to social media. What typically happens is I'll create content that'll then be supported with a campaign that may or may not be conducted on social media. media. Very often it'll be more like a banner ads that may appear with a, a social media post, et cetera. What I have found, and I know this will be controversial, is at least in the B2B space, social media is not really a, a significant player in marketing and sales for B2B. Some will argue differently, but I would say to them, show me the proof. I just don't <laughs> see it. All right. If there is a guest out there that has that proof, I, I welcome you on to the show. Maybe we could have a, a little uh, three-way discussion. I would love it. Uh, so, but uh, Jonathan, I'm curious, when did you found Kranz Communications? That was uh, 1996, January of 1996. In August of 95, my first daughter, Rebecca, was born. I was working as a paralegal in downtown Boston. And one day at a company event, which the boss invited the family to come over, our families to join us, I remember the boss met my daughter for the first time. She was only like two, three months old at this event. And the boss put his arm around my shoulder. And he says, Jonathan, I love it when uh, my employees either buy a house, get married, or have a baby, because then I know they're my wage slave forever. And he he wasn't being mean. He was a good man. But what I recognized in that moment was that he was absolutely correct, that if I didn't take charge of my life, if I didn't seize it, yeah, then I would be a wage slave. And that was the, the, the inspiration for me to find a new direction 
that ultimately culminated in uh, starting my business in January of 96. Great. So if we could go back a little bit to more of your educational background, I'm curious, you know, what what was the reason you enrolled in grad school? What made you want to go beyond undergrad with your studies? Well, you know, I, I graduated from Rutgers with a degree in art, not art history, but making art, oil painting specific was my big concentration. And my initial thing was, you know, I was going to be a visual artist and that just didn't work out for any number of reasons. I I think um, my original plan was that I'd work whatever job I could find and then I would paint and nights and weekends. And then when I would find is that, you know, the evenings I'd be exhausted because by the time I made the commute home, prepared a meal, I mean, it was like an hour or two and was ready to go to bed and get up for the next day. And then the weekends would come and I was so drained that it was just hard to get anything moving. So long story short, that didn't, the art itself didn't go anywhere. And so I spent a number of years wandering around the wilderness thinking, you know, what am I going to do to make a living, much less, you know, have a a meaningful career. And it occurred to me, you know, I I wasn't a bad writer. A lot of my, my teachers had complimented me for my writing. And I thought, well, is there something I do with, I could do with that? And at this point, my original intention was totally mercenary. I thought, how could I make money writing? And I thought about technical writing, didn't know much about it. Commercial writing, didn't know much about it. So I thought I'd go to school. And as I started studying what options would be for a graduate degree in writing, I was highly encouraged to skip any program that concentrated in tech writing and go directly to the MFA. The thinking was that that would give, you know, the greatest flexibility for any kind of writing I might want to do. Plus, the MFA is regarded as a terminal degree, which means it can qualify me to teach at an institution of higher learning, a college or university. So I said, what the hell? And in preparation for the MFA, I got into fiction writing. I started writing on my own. And then that's what I concentrated on when I got my MFA. And I finished that, I think, around um, early 95. Did the dream of painting on the nights and weekends turn into a dream of writing fiction on the nights and weekends once you secured a better job? Well, here's the thing. What happened was I, I, I got my, finished my MFA and as I was working as a paralegal, as I said earlier, and then I had that epiphany that I described to you. And my initial thought was if I could work for myself, I could work on my fiction for a couple hours in the morning and then dedicate myself to, to the business um, throughout the remainder of the day. And, and then what really happened, and this is also kind of an interesting story, is that you know, a couple of years in, and I realized that there were two things. One is that it was harder and harder for me to get myself motivated to write fiction in the mornings. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was, you know, when you're thinking about an impending deadline ahead, my thought was, you know, I'd rather just do the client work and get this done and get the money. And I also realized too, that to really build the business would take a complete commitment. So I gave myself permission to quit writing fiction and to just focus on uh, building the business. I had now at this point, I have two children, a first home, a mortgage, and all the things that go with that, that I'm sure everyone who's listening to this or many of people listening to this will understand or appreciate. Ironically, as it turns out, Years later, leaping ahead to 2009, I got the inspiration to write a novel. And after a six-year torturous process of writing, looking for an agent, looking for a publisher, I did indeed get that novel published in 2015. Oh, congratulations. Well, thank you. So you're at this point where you finished grad school and you had 
as you mentioned, I'm not sure how to phrase it, if it was career ambitions, but you went into it fairly practically. You liked the flexibility the degree would offer you. Yes. And at that point too, my mind had changed. I thought, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to become a fiction writer. So I had turned. My initial uh, motivation was figure out some kind of commercial application. Then I got into fiction, got the degree, and then I changed yet again, back and forth, <laughs> back and forth kind of quality. And I hope that's also useful to your, your audience that not everything is linear. There can be a cyclical or iterative quality to our journeys. In fact, most of the time, that, that's the way they actually really do evolve. So you were a paralegal and then you left that in, I believe you said 96 Correct. to start your own firm. I, I personally would feel so intimidated going from a paralegal to a you know solo marketer. What yeah. was that transition like? I'd like to say that I went into it, you know, with just complete 100% confidence and, you know, just damn the torpedoes. But the truth was, I recognized that there was risk here. I had never done anything like this and no one in my family had ever done anything like this. So it was risky. I, I, I recognize that because even if the wage work I was doing wasn't that wasn't particularly rewarding or even remunerative, it was at least stable and reliable. You know, you, you do the work and every two weeks there's a check, right? Or, or something similar to that. And I remember even my, again, my, my baby Becca, she's, you know, wakes up in the middle of the night and I get up to, to, to walk her, you know, to get her back to sleep. And I'm walking up and down the hallway, just doing the math in my head and thinking, am I crazy? Is this the right thing to do? Am I nuts? Here I am. I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a father. Does this make sense? Is this self-indulgent? And this went on for weeks, but I held to my initial deal with myself. And that deal was, look, I would find three clients, three pieces of business, and then I would commit fully full-time. And let me just explain, there was a little bit of a transition. So toward the end of 95, as I was still a paralegal, I managed to pick up some pieces of work, did my first freelance work. In fact, it was for um, the very first commercial writing I did was for a video catalog, a little digest-sized video catalog, where my job was literally to write little descriptions of the movies for, that people would order from the catalog. This is pre-internet. And then after that, I managed to pick up some work with a, a, a former um, studio mate of mine, Glenn Wish, who left art school to found his own graphic design studio and business. And he gave me a break and it had gave me some assignments that included uh, a catalog called Sound Exchange by Warner Brothers, which sold kind of a pop culture related merchandise, kind of music related merchandise. So in addition to CDs and DVDs, it would have things like, you know, T-shirts and wall hangings and all kinds of, you know, Jim Crack and crap, Ola, you know, you name it. <laughs> and then I did a lot of, also for him, I did stuff with uh, Publishers Clearinghouse. So I had that. And then I said, I need two other things. And I got two other gigs and I said, okay, I gave my resignation notice and I dived in. Wow. So it sounds like a critical part of that I'm not sure if you want to call it networking or or just simply stating your intentions, but um, I mean, you you built before you launched, right? Yes, a, 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 a bit. And the other thing to, 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 to consider is that at first, my first inclination was to continue being a wage slave by finding another wage slave thing, but in writing. And I started doing all the, thing, the things that Job Seekers is supposed to do, you know, those informational interviews you conduct with people, et cetera. 
And it was during the course of that, those interviews that I had a, a kind of insight. So the year is 1995, and my brother Christopher was generous enough to buy me my first real computer. This was a Pentium 75. Woohoo! At the time, that was a big freaking deal, right? And that would have been, you know, one, a version of Windows 3, I think, at that time. But one day, I'm sitting in my room with this computer that, I, you know, probably between games of Doom. And... Um, <laughs> And I realize, hold it, the modern computer is an office in a box. It's a place to create your work. It's a place to store your work. It's a place to communicate, you know, via fax or email. You could do your books on that computer. In fact, everything that you would need from an employer is in the computer as long as you're willing, in this case, I'm willing to go out and hunt that is to go out and get the business itself. When I realized the technology was in, uh, available to enable the independence, it also occurred to me that, you know what? Starting out my own would be no more difficult than trying to find a job with a regular employer because either way I had to build a portfolio. And mm -hmm. I said, you know, if I'm going to develop a portfolio of sample work, why not just do that for myself? Well, now I'm, I'm waxing nostalgic slightly for my Pentium 166 Packard Bell. My, <laughs> was it too far after yours? Yeah. So I, I want to talk a bit about building the business. Like after you, you got some clients and you put the work into it, you know, I hate to embarrass you, but I mean, you're a fairly well-established writer. You know, you're involved in content marketing world. You're at a lot of conferences. You've worked with pretty prestigious clients. What were those early days like once you, you really started getting full-time to becoming a pretty well-known uh, voice in your field? So I'm going to tell you the truth. That first year, I made a whopping $18,000, more or less, 18000 Like in 1996? Yes, in 1996. Okay. And I spent that year aggressively networking. At that time, again, still, this is very early internet. The internet existed, but it really wasn't a useful tool yet. You have to remember, very early. I don't even know the first browser may have come out by this time, but it was still a novelty. It was not what it is today, which is just like the glue for our entire society. At that time, it was still a novelty. So any networking was meant face-to-face. -face. And I would actually, I subscribed to a paper, the Boston Business Journal. Every town, every city, I think, has one of these. There's a Milwaukee Business Journal, New York, whatever. So Boston Business Journal, the reason I subscribed most of all was because it would have an events calendar. And so there are things like the American Marketing Association, the Business Marketing Association, the New England Direct Marketing Association, the New England Society for Healthcare Communicators, uh, the Society of Independent Consultants, uh, New England Editorial Society. I mean, one group after another. So I would say I was doing events like two or three a week to network, network, and network. And it panned out. And here's, here's the thing about it. If I took the attitude one by one, you know, go to an event and then that night evaluate, was it worth it? Most of the time I would have said no. I mean, you get a few business cards, you follow up with, a, you know, some correspondence. And most of the time, nothing would come out of it. But you do it for the few times when it hits because that's it. That's your traction. That's where you start. And through that networking, I was able to develop uh, some contacts that did lead to work. And, and that goes to part two. Well, how do you grow a business? Well, one opportunity that came to itself was from a, a local 
hospital, local hospital, had a PR department, and they needed articles. They just contracted with a, a local paper where they would do an article a week, allegedly from one of their providers, one of the doctors. So my job is to ghostwrite. The payment for these was ridiculous. It was like a buck twenty-five, a buck fifty an article. I mean, I mean a hundred fifty, of course, but still really low. But at the time, I was thrilled because it gave you know I I needed the money. It also gave me a, a toehold. So what I did next is what's important. Is that once I did one or two articles, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start marketing myself as a healthcare writer. And what I did was I joined a whole bunch of organizations that were about healthcare marketing, largely just to get their mailing lists. And I literally built a database through WordPerfect because WordPerfect had that capability. We could develop a base directly from the program for mail merge. And I compiled the list, you know, from multiple groups of, you know, hundreds of persons long. And I would do bulk mailings, you know, myself with just a regular, in my Pentium 75, the Euler Packard, you know, laser jet printer and a bunch of envelopes and just a lot of licking of stamps, et cetera. And, you know, the response rates were, of course, low because they naturally are, right? You know, 3% was considered uh, very good. But imagine that means if you do 100 pieces of mail, maybe three responses. So the truth was I do more than 100, maybe 300, 350. Maybe I get four responses. But of those four, you should convert one. That's all I needed. That's all I needed. And I would just keep doing it. So it was a pattern of that. I would just keep doing that. And over time, the portfolio just grew. I had more and more healthcare. But I began to diversify. I, I made an important contact at an, an agency that no longer exists called CPS Direct, a direct uh, uh, mail outfit. And that was phenomenal. I worked with a brilliant creative director named Evan Stone, wonderful man. Learned the ropes from him about the essentials of direct marketing copywriting. And from there, I was able to build on that experience, again, with the similar process of developing mailing lists, doing those mailings, continuing the networking. And gradually, little bit by little bit, building up a business. In fact, so much so that the second year of my business, I more than tripled what I made the first year. So the second year, I made around 66000 I think, ninety-seven. Now, in today's dollars- pretty good money in 1997. Yeah, exactly, 1997. Yeah. That, that ain't hay. That's not bad. And for me, it was the first time in my professional career that I was really successful. Because after college, and you know, I'd worked a number of crummy jobs, like so many- you know, the kind of, I did picture framing, I did weighted tables, you know, all kinds of different stuff. But this was it. I was like, holy shit, I've made this happen. I'm, I'm, it's for real now. I'm a success. You know, I'm, I'm actually making it happen. And that's really the story. You know, I, I think the other thing I want to say about this is not only the sense of, you know, get that initial traction, then expand, exploit it to expand it and get more business. But also I would say to people, expect that career to change over time. For example, I did a lot of healthcare writing back then. Today, not so much. I do it occasionally, but not the way I used to do it. Another thing that's changed is uh, I used to do a lot of junk mail, a lot of direct mail packages. Love doing that. You'd have to write the envelope. You'd have to, you know, with a teaser, then you'd have the, the letter, the push note, the brochure, the uh, lift note. I mean, everything. It was fun to create those packages. But then, as you, as you know, in the early 2000s, with the rise of the internet, direct mail response rates just bottomed out. I mean, I watched it literally year over year. So you can see 1999, people saying, oh, 3% is great. 2000, if you can get 2%, 2001, 1.5%. By 2002, it was like, if you could get 0.75% response, you're doing great. 
but that isn't great. The business was collapsing and even my own direct mail efforts that I just described were failing. I would send out 700 letters and get nothing, zip, silence. And that was really scary. And, and again, I morphed my career. Obviously, I turned a more digital turn. The web page, my website became more important, but also it became more important to write for the web at that, at that point. It became about the, the web pages plus content that people could access via the web. And uh, it's been like that ever since. Sending the, the letters, I mean, people call it outbound marketing or push marketing. But then in the early 2000s, you know, there is that switch of why should I wait for someone to contact me? I'll just go online and find what I need. And that, you know, became inbound marketing or, or pull marketing. So that's when you adapted, like you were talking about earlier, to create content that when people were looking for someone like you, that's how they found you versus you putting more effort into finding people. Absolutely. Jesse, that's a stone cold truth. So what for me now, marketing becomes less pushing stuff out and hoping people respond to really create, for my own purposes, creating content. And that kind of content could be, for instance, a, the stuff on my blog. It could be, e I had an e-newsletter for a while. It could be the newsletter. It could also be writing articles that would appear either in print, like I eventually I did articles of the Boston Business Journal, for example. And then increasingly online publications. Like I, I did a lot of stuff for um, marketing profs, did a lot of articles for them. And that was incredibly productive. And of course, speaking, public speaking. So a little hint for people, if you can do speaking, if that's something that doesn't scare you, do it because most of your competitors won't. So you get an instant advantage right there. So I'd say that my appearance at Content Marketing World speaking and, and public speaking is a large part of what draws the leads in today. I, I do really want to talk about speaking and workshops, leading seminars, that type of thing. But before we get into that, there's something I'm curious about. You've also spent a lot of time talking about networking and, and pounding the pavement. As you were going through this, were you frustrated that you weren't spending all your time working on client work or did you kind of get this little entrepreneurial itch of you know making deals and, and building a business? Well, you brought up an essential thing. If you go out on your own, as a consultant or a service provider, you instantly have two jobs. The one job is whatever it is you do. For instance, I write copy for clients. But then there's the second job, and that job is marketing my own business, promoting Jonathan Kranz. And I think that that's the difference between people who do well freelancing and those who don't, is I think that the, the ones who understand that they have that second job of self-promotion are going, to, are, are going to be much more likely to make it. When I see freelancers fail, it's typically follows a model like this. You find someone who's working for a company, finds that the clients love him or her, and maybe one of the clients even makes a pass saying, hey, if you leave this place, you know, we got plenty of work for you, et cetera. And so you, you leave intending to coast on the, the contacts you already made when you were previously a full-time employee. And that typically works maybe two to three years. And then uh, what happens is, is that there's a life cycle to any client engagement. You, you don't get clients forever. Maybe it only lasts one project. Maybe it's a series of projects. Maybe you get a couple of years, but it's rare to get more than a few years out of a client relationship. 
client business changes. They take a new path. Another agency comes in. There's so many reasons why they may change their talent. So what that means is if you're not continually refilling that funnel with prospects, eventually you're going to run out of clients and run out of business. So it's really critical, critical for anyone who wants to go independent to consider that independence means having to invest in your own self-promotion. And speaking of self-promotion, just like you mentioned earlier, public speaking, can you talk a little bit about maybe, I don't know if it's specifically that first opportunity or some of those early ones and how you, you started that and, mm-hmm. and what you saw from, from those experiences? Yes, I can. So uh, as I said earlier, I attend a lot of networking events and at many of these events, they follow a similar format. You know, there's like a cocktail hour for, for you know, and schmoozing. Uh, for about an hour, hour and a half. Then maybe there's a meal and a speaker, Q&A, and everyone goes home. And at first, I was really intimidated. I thought, to be a speaker, you have to just know so much about your topic. You, you have to be an expert in order to get up in front of all these people, right? And then after attending a number of these events and realizing that the level of quality was often marginal, Every once in a while, you'd, hit, you'd, you'd find a fantastic speaker and you'd be so grateful. You'd learn so much. You'd be inspired. You'd get practical information you could use. But unfortunately, that was kind of the exception. Most of the time, it was pretty mediocre. And I recognized a couple of things. One, the bar is low. So good news, everyone who's thinking about speaking, the bar is really low. That's kind of good for you. The second thing I realized is that you don't have to know everything. Even if you know a small thing that has value for your audience, a little thing, that's enough. Talk about that for 40 minutes, and you can. You don't have to have the answers to the secrets of the universe. Do you know something that would be useful to your audience? Yes? Good. Go for it. Do it. Run with it. So a a little piece of advice is if you're stuck for an idea, think about ways that you would challenge the conventional wisdom in your industry or field and talk about that saying everyone says do zig, but I'm telling you, you should zag. Here's why. There's a speaking topic. I'm guessing we're kind of in the 2000s now. Like mm-hmm. you, you're, you're pretty well established. You've done some speaking, at least from what I've seen from people's listings on websites, like workshops can be kind of, I don't know if goldmine is really the right term, but they can be pretty lucrative. I know this is something that you've done as well. Are workshops something that in your experience, a lot of speaking led to, or how did you get to to that position to be able to do those types of things? Well, it was a combination of feeling comfortable with speaking. And then also in 2004, I uh, published writing copy for dummies. So, you know, those yellow and black dummies books. So I wrote one, I wrote the one on copywriting. So that experience was interesting. No one ever picked up the book and then called me to give me business. That never happened. So that (laughs) did not happen. I have gotten calls, of course, from other writers saying, gee, how did you get the book deal? Can you tell me what the secret is? Or, gee, I'd like to start as a copywriter. Can you help me? And usually I do help. But what it really did, the virtue of that book was that it opened up speaking opportunities and uh, article writing opportunities. You know, it was the strength of the writing copy for dummies that I had credibility with marketing profs. So I published bunch of articles or marketing profs. And then I have credibility to organizations that have conferences, you know, host conferences and looking for speakers. The workshop, I'm trying to remember, I think I started that about 14 years ago. 
And I really did it as an experiment. I just said, I now offer this and, and seeing would any, you know, run up the flag and see if anyone would salute. What made my workshop distinctive is that I said, one, we would develop the curriculum together. There is no pre-made curriculum. We would have a conversation, talk about the outcome that you desired, and then I would customize a curriculum to the outcomes you want. It's all exercise-based. And I got some bites. And, I, and a couple of things happened. One, I found that they are lucrative, or they can be. And number two is that I really enjoyed doing them and find that a very rewarding, meaningful experience helping other people become better at what they do or discover talents that they did not know they had. So that's always been an exciting part of my business. Well, not always, but it has become an exciting part of my business. What were you doing to, to learn the ropes of copywriting and marketing, especially since you, you didn't work somewhere full-time for a couple of years to, to learn the ropes? That's right. So you made an interesting point. I learned after I launched a business that I had done it the wrong way. The thing I was supposed to do was get some years of experience either in-house, that is working for a, for a company, right, on their in-house marketing team or for an agency. And I had done neither. I just started freelancing. And, and I didn't know that was novel until after I did, you know, fulfill the novelty. This audience, the temptation will be to go back to school to learn something new. And, and you think about it. If you're a person, you've finished undergraduate, then you're, you're able to actually get into a grad school, which is not necessarily that easy. You have, you know, the, the application process can be a real pain in the butt. You go to grad school and now you're, you may have debt from undergrad, debt from grad school, and you realize I want to, you know, whatever, whatever reason, whatever you studied in grad school is not going to be it. So the thing is, you say, I need something else. You may think, okay, I'll go to school again, or I'll go through a certificate program. I would discourage that. I would say, do something different this time. And that is find a way to learn independently or learn on the job. And if there is a certificate or another graduate degree involved that's necessary, let the employer pay for it if you can. So what I did specifically in my case is that, no, I did not get into a certificate program for marketing or marketing copy. I did two things. I did that networking I told you about. And also that networking also included some events that were instructive in nature that became very important to me. Like, this is a program of copywriting. Great. I attended those. I also read some books. People forget that books are still a major resource, even with the web. And in fact, that, that could be your secret weapon is that you're willing to sit down and invest the time to actually read a book or many books cover to cover, which a lot of people are reluctant to. Uh, I, I found especially hel helpful for those of you interested in copywriting, John Capel's Tested Advertising Methods is a classic from back in the dark ages, I think of the 40s or 50s, but it's still a masterpiece, still relevant today. Another book I liked is Ogilvy on Advertising. That book is as uh, informative as it is fun and enjoyable to read. Ogilvy has a lot of wisdom to share, and I learned a lot from him. And then you just pick up things like, you know, if you could attend conferences, you could pick up things through osmosis, not just through the sessions, but in your networking, your BSing with other people, you, you learn this stuff. And then finally, you know, you, the ultimate way you learn is you learn by doing it, right? Trial and error and, and, and that kind of thing. But I really would encourage people to say, your next step, see what measures you can take to learn without having to acquire any more debt or absorb more of your time, because that's really burdensome. So 
with all of these experiences and with all these things your business offers, what have you found most enjoyable about your work? It's the satisfaction of knowing that I helped other people do their jobs and reach their goals. That I actually contributed something meaningful that moved things forward, especially if it's challenging. I, I like the challenging stuff, not the sexy, easy stuff. I like the difficult stuff. And I find it really exciting to, to put in the hard work, the hard thinking, you know, consider what avenues are, uh, of attack are really available, pursue them as effectively as you can. And then you'd get the share and the satisfaction, not just of a job well done, but a job well done with other people who are counting on you. And together you've collectively made something meaningful happen. And I think that's the single most, uh, in, in general, gratifying. When I do the training, it's really the, the contact with other human beings. It's incredibly exciting when you realize someone's gotten it. When you see that light bulb go off over their head, when they put up their hands and like, oh, I get it. You know, that is just such a rewarding experience when you're a teacher and one of your students, one of the people that you're working with suddenly has that insight, that breakthrough, and they got it. That's incredibly satisfying. Would you say you love your job? Do you like your job? How important is job fit to you? I'm going to say this. I'm going to contradict everything that most everything you've heard from every job seeking guru out there. Don't follow your passion. What I mean is, you go on to LinkedIn, you read people's profiles, guaranteed 99% of them will have the words, I have a passion for. Industrial waste management. Whatever it is. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, and no one cares what you have a passion for, first of all. It doesn't matter. I, I'm not going to hire someone because you have a passion. Like industrial waste manager, and if I needed an industrial waste manager, I don't care if you're passionate about it. All I care about is that you're good at it. That's it. And conversely, from the other side, the actual practitioner, you don't have to be passionate about something to be good at something. I, I read a wonderful book years ago. Uh, it was a nonfiction book that was profiling different law enforcement officers. And there was one officer who was an S expert in ballistics. And he was an interesting guy because unlike almost every single one of his colleagues in ballistics, he was not a gun enthusiast. He only had two guns. His service revolver or, or pistol, whatever it was, his service firearm, and then a firearm that had been his grandfather's many years before that he kept as an heirloom. That's it. He wasn't a collector. He didn't, he didn't love guns. However, he was acknowledged as one of the best ballistics experts in the country. He was excellent at what he did. And so it wasn't about he was passionate about guns. He was passionate about being a conscientious, dedicated professional. And so he did fantastic work. And, and the way I feel, too, is you'll often hear someone say, you know, people say, never run from something, run to something, have an aspiration to run to. And I would say, well, that's a privilege. You know, if you're in a position where you can run to something, that's a wonderful thing. Mazel tov to you. But for many of us, um, we do need to run from something. For me, I wanted to get out of wage labor. I wanted to, to be independent. I wanted the greater flexibility to be spend more time with my kids during the day rather than being tied to a, a desk. And so, yes, I was running from wage labor to something that would give me independence. So I approached marketing, marketing copywriter, not because I fell in love with marketing copy, but because I recognized that copywriting was a way, a means for me to achieve independence. And, you know, my passion is really more for freedom than for writing per se. I'm interested in what you were mentioning about passion. You were an art major. 
you have an MFA in creative writing. You, you mentioned that you, you scratched the itch and, and got a novel out. Do you sometimes feel like I really want to spend, you know, some evenings and weekends painting or, or, or writing stories or, or what have you? What is your relationship to that now? It's, a, I, it's complicated. You know, I do get that impulse now and again. But I got to tell you, it's really hard to sustain that kind of disciplined commitment to really succeed in, in either of those things, and, and, you know, because that's what it takes. It takes that kind of de disciplined, systematic dedication to really succeed. So, you know, I vacillate. Sometimes I go, it's, I'm fine. I'm happy with the way things are, and I have hobbies and interests that I pursue, and that's good enough. And there are other times when I go, gosh, you know, I wish I could make a, a greater mark on the world. Is you know, Do I have a story to tell? Do I have something beautiful to show? And 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 the answer is eh, not that I can think of at the moment. So I would say, <laughs> I'd say Jesse that the doors aren't closed, mm -hmm. but you know I don't see any immediate plans for a, a creative venture in either direction necessarily. But who knows? I could be taken by surprise tomorrow. Find inspiration, develop the discipline, and and be back on you know back active in something again. It could happen. I remember from a previous conversation, I mean, you, you mentioned you were into architecture and art. And, oh, yes. I mean, you, you've mentioned reading, you know, a number of books that were more on the practical side. It sounds like you're still engaged, if not creating. Oh, absolutely. If you saw like the, the magazines I subscribe to and, you know, the things I, I, you know, like, for instance, one of my favorite magazines is called Ugly Things. And three times a year, they come out. Basically, it's, it's not even a, a magazine. I'd call it a book. It's like 250 pages, eight and a half by 11 or 12. And it's dedicated to obscure music in the period 65 to 75. So a lot of psychedelia, garage rock, all that, especially the forgotten stuff. You know, the local hometown heroes that maybe cut one seven inch and then disappeared forever. This is what Ugly Things concentrates on, and, and that's part of my hobby, part of the records is, you know, exploring obscure music. And so, yeah, I love getting, you know, reading about that. I also subscribe to a magazine called Fungi. Yes, fungus. You know, so I'm interested in mycology. I'm excited that spring is beginning because that means in a few more months, mushroom season is beginning and I can go back outdoors and hunt for mushrooms, which is a hobby that I love. And that is a passion. It's just what I, something I love to do. And I also, you know, I have other things. I just, I'm learning more about natural history. I'm spending more time outdoors and I still have a love of art, love going to museums. If I come to a conference in your city, yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to play hooky, skip the talks and go to your local art museum. That's probably what's going to happen in reality. So yeah, those passions, those loves are still there, but uh, I don't know that I'm necessarily a contributor. And just for listeners behind Jonathan is what I'm guessing is probably four to 500 LPs behind you? Well, yeah, there's at least that. And I have a total of around 4,500. So this is, you know, would that time I spent hunting for these records be better spent building my business? Probably. But those are the choices I made. And, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. So uh, this has been great. And I'm, I'm just kind of wondering as we wrap things up, what questions should someone in grad school, maybe a few years out or maybe at any stage really be asking themselves if they really think that their discipline isn't going to work out and they're considering something outside their field of study. I would say a couple of questions. One question I would ask myself is what skills or areas of knowledge have I acquired along the way in either or both my undergraduate and graduate careers that could have applicability and meaning in other contexts? 
for instance, in the sciences, you may have become really adept at research or statistical analysis. Well, guess what? Those are skills that are valued in multiple contexts beyond pure science, right? In my case, it was obviously communications, writing. So where could I apply that in a way that would be, that would enable me to have a living? So I think you want to look at, kind of do an inventory of the things that you're able to do and say, where else would that be valuable? Mm -hmm. I think that that would be extremely useful. And then apply on top of that some filters. So first filter might be, okay, of all the things where I could apply myself that's outside my specific field, what would I find satisfying or at least interesting? And even if you're not passionate about it, you would at least find doing, like I find doing the work very satisfying. I like succeeding. I like being successful as a writer. I enjoy doing good work for my clients. You want to say, what else could you imagine yourself doing that even if it's not your dream, still would be satisfying labor? I, I think you would ask about two obviously is who else needs those kind of skills? Where else are those needed? That's an, it's a really the same question, just spinning at 180 degrees. But those are the questions I'd start with. And, and, and then I'd go in a very practical way, what are the realistic opportunities available to me? So that would depend on where you're located, who you know, networking contacts, for example. You really do want to think, where are those opportunities? And I'm not talking pie in the sky stuff. I'm talking about real ground level stuff that you could actually get into. Sometimes those practicalities are that there's a job you could actually get to. You know, that's not an hour and a half commute, but something you can say, yes, I could do this. I could have whatever the context of my personal life is. This is a doable vocation. So those are the questions you want to ask. Where else are my skills and expertise applicable? Who needs those kinds of skills and expertise? What would I find satisfying? And what practical opportunities exist adjacent to me. All right. If people want to check out your business, where, where should they go? And if they're curious about your novel. So first off, to learn more about my business, just Google my name, Jonathan Kranz, K-R-A-N-Z, and you'll end up at Kranz Communications. I think the website is www.kranzcom.com. And there's a bunch of, there's an outdated blog that I haven't updated and I'm embarrassed to say how long, but there's a lot of good, useful content out there, especially if you're a copywriter, there are actually good how-to articles and some stuff that are free to download. You don't have to give me your email address. It's totally anonymous. It really is absolutely free. There's information out there. My novel is a, a young adult novel called Our Brothers at the Bottom of the Bottom of the Sea. Well, thank you, Jonathan. This was a great conversation. Thank you, Jesse. It was a great pleasure. And I wish you the best of luck and the best of luck to, to anyone listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Work Seminar. If you like what you've heard, please take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Know someone who'd be a great Work Seminar guest or have a suggestion or two for the show? You can reach me at jesse at theworkseminar.com or at The Work Seminar on social. And thanks, as always, to John Camp for the music and Isabel Patino for the design. Until next time, never cease from exploration.